0: Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening and I pray God's spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. All right, well, Easter is the celebration that stands at the very center of the Christian faith, because on Easter, we remember the resurrection of Jesus and his victory over our sin. Now, on the one hand, this day of remembering would seem kind of unnecessary because we have the opportunity every single day to live in light of the reality of this eternity-altering event, But the problem is, we're prone to put so many other things at the center of our faith that we forget. I mean, if you think about it, if you just look at our time and our attention, it's sadly clear that things like maybe some pet area of theology or uh, a denominational tradition or some aspect of Christian cultural preference, they're far more our focus than the fact that we have the privilege of following a God who is so powerful that he laid down his own life on a cross and then took it back up again three days later. And so as a result, we need Easter. We need this built-in reminder of what actually happened that first Easter morning. We need the reminder of this tomb that was holding the dead body of our crucified Savior on Saturday, instead sat empty that Sunday morning because Jesus had risen from the dead. But, but here's the thing, in addition to a reminder of what happened that first Easter morning, we also need the reminder of what exactly it accomplished for us. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, the price for our sin was paid, and its power to separate us from God was broken. The resurrection of Jesus made possible the most important distinctive of the Christian faith, forgiveness. Forgiveness. If you think about it, there is no other world faith that is built on the premise of forgiveness. Instead, religion and its many faces is built on the the premise of striving to somehow balance the scales through good works and religious activity. So religion is all about earning, but the resurrection is about receiving the free gift of forgiveness by grace. And so if you're new to the Christian faith, I don't want to make any assumptions about where we're all at this morning, but if you're new to the Christian faith, I want you to know the Bible says that God created humanity to flourish in relationship with him and in relationship with one another. But sadly, instead of living in the garden of God's good way for us, we seek to live our own way. And the scriptures call this sin and say that the problem of sin runs so deep in us that we could never make it right on our own. And so because he loved us so much, Jesus Christ, God the Son, stepped into human history by taking on flesh and becoming human. And every single day of his life, he lived in perfect relationship with God the Father the way that you and I don't. He then took the penalty of our sin upon his shoulders and sacrificed his life in our place for our sin. And then three days later, he rose again, inviting everyone to simply receive the forgiveness he accomplished by faith and to follow him. So Easter is all about forgiveness. But the truth is, there's there's something else we forget. We forget that the miracle of the resurrection empowers us to do the very thing that it accomplished for us. It empowers us to forgive as well. And so on this Easter morning, we're going to finish up this three words series that we have been in by talking about the three simple healing words that the resurrection makes possible for you and I. The three words, I forgive you. And so if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, do me a favor and open up to Matthew chapter 18. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the scripture will be on the screen, but we're going to be in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context for what we're about to get into. Uh, These verses center around a lesson that Jesus taught Peter. Now, Peter's my favorite of Jesus' original disciples because he gives me so much hope for my own life. He was a successful fisherman by trade, and Jesus spent three years preparing him and the rest of the disciples to build the church that he himself, through his resurrection, was about to give birth to. Peter was rash, he was unrefined, and he was passionate. And as a result of those things, he was no stranger to the regret of a rushed decision or the embarrassment of a mistake made. And despite all this, his failures were never fatal. He was quick to repent, To refocus and redirect his energies in a way that drew him closer to Jesus rather than further from him. And so here in Matthew 18, a seemingly humble question from Peter prompts Jesus to provide us with a profound picture of the very forgiveness that his own gift demands from us. And so look with me if you would at Matthew 18. We'll start in verse 21. It starts like this. It says, then Peter approached Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus replies like this. He says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Now, it seems natural to be impressed with Peter's humble willingness to readily forgive someone in his life Seven times doesn't it because I mean most of us if we're honest most of us would never put ourselves in a position to be sinned against by the same person more than once not in any sort of significant way and so on the surface it sounds so noble Peter's willingness to forgive someone seven times is staggering but only on the surface you see popular rabbinic teaching in the first century held that a uh, Jewish people were to forgive people three times But on the fourth offense, they were set free from any obligation to forgive that person again. So it sounds like Peter's being really noble. What Peter's doing in reality, though, is what is commonly known as brown-nosing. Peter's thinking, like, all right, I know the rule's three. And I know that Jesus has a pretty consistent, like, go big or go home mentality when it comes to the Old Testament law. So I'm going to say seven but it's Jesus we're talking about. So despite his best attempt to cover his own self-righteousness and humility, Jesus sees right through him. So imagine being Peter when Jesus responds and he says, I, I tell you not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. So Jesus is saying, like, really, Peter? Like, don't-, don't bring that self-righteous attempt at spirituality to me. The commonly accepted rule may be three, but even seven times is not enough. There is to be no limit To our forgiveness and if you like really listen closely you can like hear Peter's brain explode inside of his head because through this single sentence and the story that Jesus uses to illustrate it we learn one of the most important resurrection implications in Scripture and that implication is this there is to be no limit to our forgiveness as followers of Christ And that might be one of the most easy things to amen and the most difficult things to put legs to. There is no limit to our forgiveness as followers of Christ. And so while there is, that's certainly true and it sounds very, very noble, we need to be honest with ourselves. You and I are very much prone to limit our forgiveness. Meaning that there are only certain situations and circumstances in which we are willing to forgive and so if our situation doesn't fit we don't forgive so things like if, if we fear that the hurt that we are carrying is too big we don't forgive if, if we fear that forgiveness means letting them off the hook for what they've done to us we don't forgive if we don't believe that enough time has passed since the offense was committed against us we won't forgive And there's a couple of really significant problems with limiting our forgiveness. For one thing, it is in complete contradiction to everything that Jesus teaches here. There is to be no limit to our forgiveness as followers of Jesus. But a second problem is that it hurts us. I don't think I can state this emphatically enough, but resentment is the result of harboring hurt. And resentment poisons the human soul. It poisons you. In every facet of life, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, it poisons you. And so although Peter was content to sit with Jesus and to talk about what was expected of him, Jesus uses a provocative parable to explain why this is so important. So look with me now at verse 23. Jesus goes on and he says this, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, uh, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion released him and forgave him the loan so jesus here pictures this king that is going to take pities He's trying to settle accounts with the servants that are under his care and one servant in particular owed an insurmountable debt Jesus uses this sum of money in order to make his point clear. He says that the servant owed his king 10,000 talents. Now, I don't know about you, but the footnote in my Bible says that a talent is worth about 6,000 denarii or 20 years wages for a labor. So here's the thing. If we were to bring this amount of money forward into our own time and our own culture, this servant owed upwards of 6 to 10, wait for it, billion dollars. It's supposed to be an absurd amount of money, which six to ten billion dollars certainly is. And so the point is, this servant is completely incapable of paying back the debt. And so as a result, the king decides to sell his entire family and everything he owned in an attempt to collect what was owed. So, So do me a favor and just put yourself in that story for a second. Imagine being this servant, Not only do you owe a debt you can't repay, but in addition, you're going to lose your entire family and everything that you have worked to acquire. And so naturally, the servant responds the way any desperate person would in this situation. He falls down on his knees and he pleads with the king for patience. Just give me a little bit more time and I promise I'm going to find a way to pay you back. And to the servant's surprise, the king takes pity on him. But his pity produces far more than mere patience. In an unimaginable display of grace, the king simply clears his insurmountable debt. He forgives it. I mean, this servant could have worked every second for the rest of his life, and he would still never be able to pay the king back. The debt was simply too big, and so the king forgives it. And this example from this gracious king begins to paint a picture for us of what genuine forgiveness looks like. So I want to be clear this morning because I do believe that forgiveness is a very misunderstood subject. So let's be clear about what forgiveness is not and what it is. For, for instance, forgiveness is not pretending like the offense didn't happen. Forgiveness is not putting yourself in a position to be hurt by the same person in the same way over and over and over again. Forgiveness is not forgetting. That's one of the dumbest things that we say as people. It doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiveness doesn't even always result in reconciliation with a person. Instead, here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the healing choice to clear the debt of the hurt caused by another. Forgiveness is the healing choice to clear the debt of the hurt caused by another person in your life. The king in Jesus' story chose forgiveness. And you would think, like again, back to our story, think about this guy's situation. You would think that anyone that was forgiven a debt as large as the one described by Jesus would be forever altered, right? Like that's the kind of debt. You're not the same after that. You are fundamentally altered. How could you be the same after it? To be freely forgiven, an insurmountable debt must be life-changing. Wouldn't you think? Apparently not. Look at verse 28. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Notice this but he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. So just like imagine this for a second. This servant has been forgiven a $6 billion debt, not given more time, not given a better interest rate, forgiven. The debt he owes is cleared. Like there's a solid possibility just to bring this into our own lives. There's a solid possibility that the vast majority of us in the room right now, we all have some type of debt, right? Maybe it's something as simple as like a, a cell phone contract that you have to pay monthly. Maybe it's student loan that's hanging over your head, a car payment or a mortgage payment that you have to make every month. I just want you to imagine for a second receiving a call saying, uh, hey, this is, uh, this is the bank and we just wanted to inform you our bank manager came in today and she is in like a really good mood. And she just wanted you to know that, uh, that we just decided to go ahead and clear your debt. I don't even know if bank managers can do that. I don't think they can. For the sake of the illustration, stay with me. We just decided we're gonna clear the debt so you don't have to keep sending us any money anymore. Like imagine if that happened to you. Wouldn't that like fundamentally alter you? Wouldn't you come home at least to be like, kids, we are going to the Olive Garden. Let's go, load into the car. <laughs> We, we started calling it the OG in our family this week. It's the OG of Italian food. But at very least, you're going out. Did you get it? You'll get it. Stay with there. <laughs> but that at least would be an appropriate response. But that is not even close to this man's response. Not two seconds after he's been forgiven this insurmountable debt, this servant runs out And finds a guy who owes him comparatively nothing it's about 12 grand in today's terms so make sure that you're tracking with this you're forgiven a six billion dollar debt and the first thing you do is you immediately go out and you choke out the guy who owes you 12 grand and despite this man's cry for mercy if you look at the text he uses virtually the exact same words that the other servant had used with the king, despite these cries for mercy, he refuses to forgive the debt of the guy who owes him and has him thrown in prison until he can pay. And so this is a point in the story in which if you are human and you have a heart beating in your chest, you are beginning to hate this servant. I mean, how sick to be forgiven that sizable of a sum and then go physically assault someone for virtually nothing by comparison. And the good news is the injustice does not go unnoticed. Look at verse 31. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were obviously deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back everything that he owed. So this this wicked servant is like super busted at this point in the story. His fellow servants observe the entire event and like you and I, they are understandably upset. And so as a result, they go and they tell the king. The king, too, is appalled and summons the servant back for what must have been an awkward and uncomfortable conversation. Saying, let me get this straight. Uh, I forgive you a debt. You are completely incapable of ever paying back. But you refuse to forgive an amount that is painfully insignificant. Are you serious? I showed you mercy and you showed none. So the king has this man arrested and he is tortured by the jailers and Jesus original listeners would have understood that this man was to suffer physically until he could pay back the full debt that was in fact impossible to be paid back. And so this is the spot in Jesus story where everyone listening is riled up and thus right where Jesus wants them to drive home his point. Because in 35, he says, so also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from his heart. This kind of feels like running around a corner and slamming face first into a wall. Because Just just like you and me, Jesus' listeners were fixated on the unfathomable nature of being forgiven, this massive debt just to attack someone over almost nothing. And it's at that point that Jesus drops the hammer on them and us. And he says, you are the wicked servant. No one was expecting that, which is usually the case. We never want to identify with the bad guys in scripture. We always want to be like Jesus or whoever's awesome. But Jesus says, no, you you are the wicked servant. If you have been undeservingly forgiven of sin against God, and yet you refuse to forgive the comparatively small sin of those around you, you're just like that servant. See, Jesus meant this $6 billion debt to represent your sin and mine. Our sin is an insurmountable debt that we could spend every second for the rest of our lives trying to pay back, trying to do good, trying to obey, and we would never come close. But the good news of Jesus is that like the gracious king in his story, Jesus forgives our debt. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again, paying for our sin and providing the means of our forgiveness. And through faith in Jesus, the debt of our sin is forgiven. And again, The forgiveness that Christ provided has relational implications for you and I. Many of us are content to receive that gift, but then not live in light of it the way that Jesus is talking about here. Bitterness and resentment are a direct result of failing to grasp the good news of Jesus. And so here's our very simple, but difficult to obey big idea. What Jesus is saying is this, forgiven people, forgive people. That's his intent and his desire and the implication of the resurrection that we as forgiven people would be people who forgive others when we are sinned against. And any unwillingness to forgive on our part should serve as a signal that we have not fully embraced the forgiveness that we have been offered. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that there's this collective thought that says, man, we want to forgive. We want to be people who are marked by forgiveness, but we don't always know how. And I think one of the things that makes forgiveness such a sobering subject to teach on is the wide spectrum of hurt that I know we're all trying to forgive. And by that I mean on on one end of the spectrum, you have the comparatively small everyday hurts that we experience at the hands of one another. Every day we experience this, a, a short or cutting comment, that hurts our feelings, a kind act that goes unnoticed, a failure to be present and to listen when someone is talking to us. These experiences hurt in a very real way, and make no mistake, if they go on dress, they definitely add up over time, but they're pretty easily forgiven when compared with the other end of the spectrum. Because on the other end of that spectrum, we have the traumas that change our lives in a moment. Things like abuse, sexual assault, things like abandonment, and betrayal. See, on that end of the spectrum, we understandably think things like, man, the hurt is just too big. The cut is just too deep. The pain is just too severe. And so we have to be careful when we talk about forgiveness, because when we talk about forgiveness in a way that seems to imply that every hurt should be equally simple to forgive, we further wound those who are already staggering from life-altering sin committed against them. And so still, the million-dollar question, despite where we are on that spectrum, is this, how do we forgive those who hurt us? Like, how do we make the healing choice To clear the debt of the hurt caused by another and I think the interesting thing is regardless of the size of the pain the process that is forgiveness is largely the same so while our pain varies based on what we experience the process doesn't we have to acknowledge the hurt ask for help and address the wound So let me break these down for us real quick before we finish up our time together this morning. So first up, we have to acknowledge the hurt. Acknowledge the hurt. Now, this is a practice that I have continually been trying to lead us to over the past 12 months. It's been a year of a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of isolation, a lot of difficulty. And so many of us have various wounds that we Are carrying in our lives and I want you to hear there is nothing biblical about ignoring or diminishing our emotions the pattern that we see in Scripture is one of honest acknowledgement God intends all of our emotions the good bad the ugly the ones that are comfortable and the ones that hurt God intends all of them to draw us deeper into him and so forgiveness starts by sitting with him in that hurt There is no healing, a hurt that will not be acknowledged. And so it starts with us sitting with God and telling him where we are hurt. But it doesn't stop there. Secondly, we have to ask for help. We have to ask for help. I think one reason that we find the practice of forgiveness so unrealistic sometimes is that we mistakenly believe that the power to forgive is supposed to come from within ourselves, so we think things like, man, I can't forgive. There's simply no way. I'm way too angry to ever forgive them for what they've done. And you I want you to know the truth is you're like absolutely right. Forgiveness is oftentimes impossible for you. But the very nature of forgiveness is supernatural. And so leaning on your own power for forgiveness is pointless. The power to forgive comes from God's spirit alone. And so what if, what if you started asking God to help you forgive that person? So as you sit with him and you acknowledge the hurt that you're feeling, that you're carrying as a result of the very real sin that has been committed against you, as you acknowledge that, what if you then in turn began to ask God for the strength, the grace, the mercy, the courage to also forgive that person? Because here's the thing. If you step out in faith and you ask God for the power necessary to forgive, I promise you that with time, he will give it to you. He will give it to you because God always empowers us for every single thing he calls us to. There's nothing that God ever calls you to and he's like, well, good luck. If he's called you to it, his spirit will empower you for it. Forgiveness requires that we acknowledge the hurt and that we ask for help. And then thirdly, and this is the hard part, it demands we address the wound. It demands that we address the wound. This is going to mean that we have to limp toward the very wounds that hurt so much. We have to not only face them, but reflect on them, talk about them, and somehow, with God's help, learn to come to terms with them. We have to come to terms with the fact that there is no going back to undo what was done to you. We have to come to terms with the fact that the apology that you deserve may never come. We have to come to terms with the fact that we might have to live with, these, with at least some amount of this wound in our lives, like an unwelcome companion our entire lives. When appropriate, it might mean that we at times have to initiate uncomfortable conversations to confront someone who has, in fact, sinned against us and inflicted this wound. We're often, if not always, going to need the help of other people and have to talk about these things to get to the bottom of it. It's going to require vulnerability, it's going to require courage, and it's going to require strength. It will not be comfortable. Is that a good sales pitch for forgiveness? Everybody's like, this sounds terrible. Why would I do any of this? And here's why. Because it results in healing. And result, resentment never will. It'll just continue to slow drip poison into your soul. And so as we bring this to a close this morning, I assume it, it's, it's obvious that forgiveness isn't as simple as this like linear one-time event. Wouldn't that be Great. You just did these three things and it's over forever but that's not how it works it's a process and the truth is the larger the wound the longer the process can take and so even if we have taken the first steps to forgive we, we are going you're going to feel resentment creep back in and so when it does we go back to this healing process of forgiveness we acknowledge the hurt we ask for help and we address the wound And as I've been reflecting on forgiveness this week, I keep coming back to this same question over and over again. And the question is, why is it that we're so prone to hold on to hurt? Like, why are we so prone to choose resentment over forgiveness? And I'm confident that like in everything, there's a lot of different reasons, but I do think there's a pretty deep one that we are prone to overlook. I think a big reason that we are slow to forgive is that it is easier to be angry than it is to grieve. It's just easier to be angry than it is to grieve. And forgiveness demands that we grieve the pain of the wound. It demands that we grieve the disappointment of failed expectations. It demands that we grieve the anger that accompanies the experience of injustice. Forgiveness demands that we grieve, that we come to terms with the reality of what has happened to us so that we can heal and move forward. And the challenge is most people following Jesus this day don't want to experience grief. In fact, in some Christian circles, grief is even a sign of weak faith, which I want you to know is like a heretical lie. Grief is not a sign of weak faith. See, we often picture this resurrected Jesus as this like always happy, always happy, never hurting savior. And so in response to that, we learn to ignore pain in an attempt to be always happy, never hurting followers. The problem is the prophet Isaiah referred to Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The scriptures tell us that sin causes God grief, to, to grieve. And so guess what? Jesus is sad a lot. Do you think about that? Like, So his resurrection, he's won. He's been victorious. He has conquered sin. But Jesus isn't sitting in heaven all happy clappy all the time. He grieves when we grieve. He grieves when we sin. Jesus is sad too and what that means for us is that we can wade into the grief that forgiveness demands and we can be confident that the jesus who rose from the dead on the first easter will wade into it with us forgiven people forgive people so let's be a people who forgive will you pray with me then we'll do some q a Father, this is, uh, this is hard. I think of your first disciples who at one point did respond to your teaching and say, this is a, this is a hard saying. Who, who can do this? And I feel that with forgiveness. Lord, you know the wounds that I feel and that I live with, that I carry, that I'm trying to work through this process with. You know the wounds that are present in this room. You know the hurt that is represented here. Lord, you know the ones that that might just be kind of small hurts that we're carrying, maybe even just this morning in an interaction that we had with someone that we love that kind of hurt us or cut us all the way to, Lord, you know that some of us sit in this room and we have wounds that own us. And so I, I don't know where all of those are, but Holy Spirit, you do. And Lord, I pray that you would lean into and minister to each and every wound that we're holding right now. And first and foremost, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not put their faith in you, believing that you did live, die, and rise for them, Spirit of God, I pray that you would awaken their faith in Jesus this morning, that they would experience the eternity-altering forgiveness that is held out to us in the resurrection, and that in turn, your Holy Spirit would take up residence within them and empower them to begin this process of forgiving. Lord, we need a lot of wisdom in this and a lot of help, and so we ask that you would help us, and that through this, you would provide healing. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.